Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this fifth episode is The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, Part 3. Before we move to the history part, I thought it would be useful to take stock. As of the recording of this episode during the third week of January 2021, I've uploaded five episodes of the podcast in total, only a few friends and family about it. Obviously, I'm still very much learning how to record, edit, find the best location to keep noise down, and so forth. And I do hope this episode is an improvement in that respect on uh, the last couple. Even so, there have been 74 downloads, and only five were mine. We've had multiple downloads from places where I've not alerted anybody, including a loyal listener in France and another in Washington State. So, obviously, very early going, but since I thought it would be something to get even a thousand downloads in the first six months, it seems we're off to a good start. In any case, thank you, and please give us a good rating in iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Now for the history part. The last time we talked about how Christopher Columbus pitched his proposal for a westbound expedition to Asia to the crowned heads of Europe finally winning backing from the dual sovereigns of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand, with a decided emphasis on Isabella. All that has come before has led us to today's episode, in which Columbus and his three famous ships sail across the Atlantic and make the first sustained contact between the eastern and western hemispheres since the Bering Land Bridge disappeared. So let's get to it. On August 3rd, 1492, a bit before dawn, Columbus and his three famous ships set sail for the first stop in their voyage, the Canaries. That day, or perhaps a few days later, Columbus began his journal, later known officially as his book of the first navigation and discovery of the Indies. The preamble was simply, in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So began, in Morrison's words, the most detailed, the most interesting, and the most entrancing sea journal of any voyage in history. Certainly so far, anyway. Marco Polo's account of his travels was pretty amazing, too, except that his trip was generally not by sea, and his story was not kept as a diary in real time. Now, You may recall that in negotiating his deal, Columbus was quite interested in both money and the offices he would be awarded if he succeeded. It is also the case that he did some decidedly unchristian things along the way. Were these first words insincere, just there to curry favor with his patrons, the very Catholic dual sovereigns? The goodness or badness, and hypocrisy or not, of Columbus remains a hot topic today, so you would not be out of bounds to ask ask the question. To that, we would remind the listener that we are devoted here to avoiding presentism, which is the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. 
I do not propose to explore whether or not Columbus failed the moral requirements of his own era. Morrison would say that he did not. But I will point you toward the most famous line from Barbara Tuckman's book, A Distant Mirror, set only about a century before Columbus. Quote, That conflict between the reach for the divine and the lure of earthly things was to be the central problem of the Middle Ages, close quote. The central problem had not been resolved by Columbus's time. Indeed, those of us in rich Western democracies have only recently resolved that conflict, and generally by giving up on the reach for the divine instead of the earthly things, which may or may not have improved the situation. In any case, Columbus set sail for the Canaries, which lie well to the south of Spain, west of Africa, instead of the Azores, from which other expeditions in search of a western passage had jumped off. If you have not memorized the map of the Atlantic Islands, this would be a useful time, if you were not behind the wheel or juggling or something, to pull out your phone and find both the Canaries and the Azores on the map app of your choice. Or you can look at the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and we will put a map in the show notes. The Azores are well to the north, and the westernmost islands in the chain are not much more than a thousand miles from the northeastern coast of North America, which, of course, nobody knew at the time. The Canaries are to the south and quite a bit farther from the New World. So why did Columbus go there? First, he knew the Portuguese had tried and failed more than once to head west from the Azores. This is because the strong prevailing wind there comes from the west, which is why clues of the New World occasionally washed ashore there, and indeed still do. Even for a nimble caravel, beating against a strong headwind is exhausting for the crew and greatly reduces the distance that can be traveled before the ship needs to reload its beer, wine, water, and food. By contrast, there are northerlies that blow down on the Canaries that time of year, and Columbus, who had been there in early days, had observed that those winds could push a ship out of the Canaries to the west. He did not know yet that those winds would carry him all the way across and would have done it any time of year. The clockwise circulation of the winds in the North Atlantic, westerlies across to the Azores in the north, and easterlies from the Canaries in the south, would turn out to be a great boon to transatlantic trade in the age of sail. But nobody knew that then. Second, you will recall from the involved math problem in part one of our Columbus story that Columbus thought Japan was significantly farther to the east and therefore closer to Europe than in fact is. Remember that by wishful thinking and poor arithmetic, he had estimated that Japan lay at roughly the location of the Virgin Islands and that he could stop there to resupply on his way to China. Well, Columbus navigated by dead reckoning, basically by keeping constant track of direction and speed. He thought it smart to set out for Japan at the presumed latitude of Japan. There lie the Canaries. We should pause at the Canary Islands of the late 15th century, just as Columbus did. In August 1492, 
Spain had been waging a war of conquest there for most of the century. Ninety years along, the natives of the island chain, a fierce, albeit fairly primitive people known as the Guanches, still controlled Tenerife and were in resistance on a couple of the other islands. It was well that the Guanches resisted, for their story foreshadowed what would eventually happen when the Spanish met the Indians of the New World. The Canaries were not entirely unknown to the ancient world, but there is scant evidence that they had been visited by any European in the Middle Ages until the 14th century. After various ad hoc visits in the early 1300s, in 1341, King Afonso IV of Portugal sponsored a three-ship voyage of exploration to map the islands over a period of months. Interest in the island chain picked up quickly thereafter. The descriptions of the primeval Guanches in particular attracted the attention of southern European merchants who were interested in a new supply of potential slaves. The Catholic Church also got in on the game. In 1344, the Castilian French noble Louis de la Cerda, Count of Clermont and Admiral of France, then serving as a French ambassador to the papal court in Avignon, submitted a proposal to Pope Clement VI, offering the church the perhaps more appealing vision of conquering the islands for the purpose of converting the Guanches to Christianity. Naturally, there were no end of great powers and grasping little city-states vying for control of the islands, so it took a while to organize a proper war of conquest. In the end, Spain won the job and launched an invasion in 1402 that would not entirely end until the conquest of Tenerife in 1496. In the event, the fight for the Canaries involved conquistadors, the unwitting spreading of disease, enslavement of surviving natives, and the building of sugar plantations to satisfy the bottomless European demand for sweets. As events unfolded, the experience in the Canaries established a pattern that would repeat itself throughout the Spanish project in the New World. Now is not the time to hack through the thicket of the roots of slavery in the New World. That day will come because slavery in its various forms had an incalculable influence on the transformation of the Western Hemisphere in the centuries since Columbus with consequences that still reverberate from Canada to the southern cone of South America. It ought to be said, as we stop to resupply our ships in the Canaries, that Spain and Portugal were, in the time of Columbus, the only countries in Europe where slavery was already a significant institution. Per Professor David Wheat of Michigan State University, quote, by the time the English colony of Virginia was founded in 1607, Africans and people of African descent had already been present in the Americas for more than a century. Recent estimates suggest that by 1625, approximately 475,000 enslaved Africans had been involuntarily transported to the Spanish Americas and Brazil more than the number of Africans who disembarked in British North America and the United States during the course of the entire transatlantic slave trade. Unlike other areas of Western Europe, 
slavery played a significant role in Iberian society at the dawn of the early modern era. In Lisbon and Evora and throughout much of southern Portugal, slaves comprised roughly 10% of the population by the mid-1550s. A comparable scenario existed in parts of southern Spain. 44,000 slaves made up nearly 10% of the population of the entire archbishopric of Seville in 1565. Rural slave labor in Iberia during the 15th and 16th centuries mainly involved herding livestock, guarding fields and flocks, clearing land, and harvesting and processing crops. Enslaved people also commonly worked as sailors and boatmen on small vessels designed for coastal trade and river traffic. In urban areas, slaves performed a wide range of occupations, laboring as artisans and apprentices, domestic servants, stevedores and porters, construction workers, and street vendors, close quote. Portugal and Spain even struck a treaty to define their respective roles in African human trafficking. One is forced to wonder how different the world might have been if the King of England or the King of France had invested in Columbus's proposal instead of Isabella of Castile. The people of neither country proved impervious to the riches promised by slavery and, in fact, would come up with some ugly innovations. But neither did they have the established social practice or cultural inclination at the end of the 15th century. And, of course, we cannot know what would have happened if a northern European country had gotten its hands on the gold and silver in Central and South America instead of the Spanish. It's probably not too far off the mark, though, to say that an awful lot, for better and for worse, turned on which monarch funded Columbus. Apologies for the digression. It won't be the last. Now we return to Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria as they sail west from the Canaries. We've already talked about Columbus's egregious errors in estimating the location of Japan. Well, how was he as a navigator? In Columbus's day, there were two ways to navigate at sea, by the stars and by dead reckoning. Navigation by the stars was extremely difficult, even when the sky was perfectly clear. There were at least two big problems with it. First, there was no known way to measure longitude where one is from east to west, except in the extremely rare circumstance of a lunar eclipse, if one happened to have at hand a nautical ephemeris, which is a book that describes the positions of celestial bodies for the purpose of enabling navigators to use celestial navigation, and the training necessary to use it. Columbus had both, but there was no propitious eclipse. Second, the device of the era for measuring latitude, a marine quadrant, did not work well on a rolling ship insofar as they relied on the relative angle of a weight at the end of a string when you aimed it at the sun or a particular star. If the ship was rolling, you could never get a good read. The weight would swing back and forth. This problem was such that exploring captains sailing among islands or along coastlines would go ashore and stand on terra firma to measure latitude. All of this meant that celestial navigation was, to put it politely, more art than science in 1492. 
While Columbus imagined himself a skilled celestial navigator, we know from his journal that he was, in fact, not very good at it and did not spend a lot of time fiddling with it. Fortunately, he was a natural at dead reckoning and often guessed at his position more accurately than the professional navigators on his three ships. For dead reckoning, you need to know how fast you are going and in what direction. There were fairly good compasses for determining direction. They had been in use for three centuries before Columbus, and captains of the era kept extra iron needles and a lodestone for magnetizing them to ensure that they could always make a new compass if something happened to the original. Measuring speed was a different matter. One had to measure distance traveled over time, and the clocks of the day did not work on a rolling ship. Instead, navigators used a 30-minute hourglass and detailed one of the boys, a grommet, to turn it exactly as it ran out in shifts around the clock. Falling asleep at that job was a grievous offense at a time when ship captains were not shy about handing out punishments for grievous offenses. Not long after Columbus, there was invented a device called the chip log, It was a shaped piece of wood. You can see a picture of it at the Wikipedia entry for chip log. Designed to float without moving in the water. The chip log was attached by a line in which knots were spaced. So that when you toss the chip log overboard, the number of knots that would pay out over 30 seconds, one used another special hourglass for this purpose, equaled the number of nautical miles per hour the ship was traveling. This is where we get the term knots for describing speed at sea. As an aside, last night I watched Master and Commander, which is set in 1805. And in that movie, they use a chip log and knots to calculate knots. Unfortunately for Columbus, the chip log had not yet been invented. He he or the officer of the watch had to eyeball the speed of Santa Maria by estimating the pace at which the ship passed bubbles or seaweed. So dead reckoning, which was more reliable aboard ship than celestial navigation, involved 24 hours a day of looking at passing bubbles and reckoning the estimated speed on charts against the ship's frequently inconsistent direction as determined by the compass. I will spare you the detailed evidence in favor of Columbus's skill at dead reckoning. For that, you need to read The Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Suffice it to say, writing long before GPS, Samuel Eliot Morrison concluded that no man alive, limited to the instruments and means at Columbus's disposal, could obtain anything near the accuracy of his results. In the event, this most momentous voyage in modern history was also one of the smoothest, Columbus left the Canaries behind on September 9th with water, food, and wine enough to last a year. And fair winds out of the east blew the caravels across to landfall in only 33 days. As Morrison points out, this was a fast trip in those days, less time than a Roman would need to reach Britain. By the first week of October, however, the crews were getting restless. They had reckoned the distance traveled to be farther than promised by Columbus during the recruitment and were worried about fighting against headwinds to get home. To prevent a mutiny, 
Explorers faced them all the time. Columbus promised his men that they would turn back in a few days. Therefore, it was with time running out that on the evening of October 7, 1492, Columbus ordered the course changed from straight west to west by southwest because he saw great flocks of birds passing overhead in that direction. He remembered that the Portuguese had discovered the western Azores by following birds. Morrison believed that this one course correction was critical. For this telling, you might again pull out your map app to follow closely. Quote, This judgment was good. For the fall migration of North American birds to the West Indies via Bermuda was in full flight, and Columbus's decision to follow these feathered pilots rather than his inaccurate man-made chart was vital for the whole future of Spanish colonization. For when Columbus determined to follow the birds, his fleet was on latitude 25 degrees 40 minutes. Had the due course west been maintained from that point, the voyage would have taken at least a day longer, and the landfall, provided Columbus had managed to keep down mutiny another day, would have been Eleuthera Island or Hole in the Wall on Great Apago. But then, except for the unlikely contingency of the local Indians piloting Columbus south through Tongue of the Ocean, the fleet would have sailed through Providence Channel slap into the Gulf Stream. And once involved in that mighty current, the caravels could never have made any southing. The fleet would have touched, and perhaps more than touched, gone ashore, on the coast of Florida, somewhere between Jupiter Inlet and Cape Canaveral, and then, provided they survived that ocean graveyard, have been swept along the coast of Georgia and the Carolinas, returning to Spain, if they managed to return, by the westerlies north of Hatteras and Bermuda. Obviously, the results of any such voyage, considering what Columbus was after and what his sovereigns wanted, would have been highly disappointing to everyone and it is questionable how soon, if ever, he would have been allowed to try again. For it was the gold of Hispaniola, and nothing else, that attracted Spaniards to the New World. A great deal was made of this change of course in the post-mortems on the voyage, and rightly so. The journal shows that the birds of North America deserve the credit. Martin Alonzo Pinzon remarked to his men, Those birds know their business. Close quote. By October 10th, the crews were getting restless and their patience was very short. The westerlies had picked up, increasing the fears of the men that they would not be able to return home, and mutiny was in the air. The ships made fast time that night, more than seven knots, and then everything changed on October 11th. Suddenly, signs of proximate land were everywhere and morale improved markedly. Nina picked up a green branch with a little flower on it. Pinta gathered a cane, a piece of board, and a carved stick fashioned by human hands. By the time the sun set at about 5.30, every man in the fleet must have been watching for land against the orange sky. Almost nobody would sleep that night, eager to be the first to spot land even in the dark. The sky was clear, and the moon was just past full in just the right position to illuminate land if it were there, ahead of the ships, 
The night of October 11th, 1492, was in Morrison's words, the most momentous ever experienced aboard any ship in any sea. Let's go back to Morrison for his account of that moment. Quote, Jupiter was rising in the east. Saturn had just set, and Deneb was nearing the western horizon, toward which all waking eyes were directed. There hung the square of Pegasus, and a little higher, and to the northward, Cassiopeia's chair. The guards of Polaris, at 15 degrees above feet, told the pilots that it was two hours after midnight. On speed, the three ships, Pinta in the lead, their sails, silver, in the moonlight. A brave trade wind is blowing and the caravels are rolling, plunging and throwing spray as they cut down the last invisible barrier between the old world and the new. Only a few moments now, and an era that began in remotest antiquity will end. Rodrigo de Triana, looking on Pinta's forecastle, sees something like a white sand cliff gleaming in the moonlight on the western horizon, and then another, and a dark line of land connecting them. Tierra, Tierra, he shouts, and this time, land it is. Close quote. The expedition had first seen what is now known as Watling's Island in the Bahamas, and what was known then to its inhabitants as Guanahani. It's vaguely oval and protected by reefs and small keys. Again, I suggest checking it out on your map app if it is available to you. The caravels sailed around the southern end of the island and anchored in a shallow bay on the western coast, sheltered there from the strong winds from the east. Presently, we have one of the only true first contact stories in recorded history, pieced together from the biography written a few decades later by Columbus's son Ferdinand in the 16th century book Historia de las Indias, written by Bartholomew de las Casas who had access to the original journal. We will conclude this episode by reading sections from those accounts, which I think are startling in the mind's eye. Quote, Presently, they saw naked people, and the admiral went ashore in the armed ship's boat with a royal standard displayed. So did the captains of Pinta and Nina, Martin Alonso Pinzon, and Vicente Yanez, his brother, in their boats with the banners of the expedition, on which were depicted a green cross with an F on one arm and a Y on the other, and over each his or her crown, and, all having rendered thanks to our Lord kneeling on the ground, embraced it with tears of joy for their immeasurable mercy of having reached it, the admiral arose and gave this island the name San Salvador. Thereupon he summoned to him the two captains and all others who came ashore as witnesses. And in the presence of many natives of that land assembled together, took possession of that island in the name of the Catholic sovereigns with appropriate words and ceremony. And all this is set forth at large in the testimonies there set down in writing. Forthwith, the Christians hailed him as admiral and viceroy and swore to obey him as one who represented their highnesses. 
with as much joy and pleasure as if the victory had all been theirs, all begging his pardon for the injuries that through fear and inconstancy they had done him. Many Indians having come together for that ceremony and rejoicing, the admiral, seeing that they were a gentle and peaceful people and of great simplicity, gave them some little red caps and glass beads, which they hung around their necks, and other things of slight worth, which they all valued at the highest price. Close quote. Well, maybe, maybe not. So says Columbus's son. At this point, Las Casas quotes the admiral verbatim, so we may gather in Morrison's words, as well as words can convey, the impression made by this branch of the American Indians on the vanguard of the race that would shortly reduce them to slavery and exterminate them. Quote, in order that we might win good friendship, because I knew that they were a people who could better be freed and converted to our holy faith by love than by force. I gave to some of them red caps and to some glass beads, which they hung on their necks, and many other things of slight value, in which they took much pleasure. They remained so much our friends that it was a marvel, and later they came swimming to the ship's boats in which we were, and brought us parrots and cotton thread and skeins and darts and many other things, and we swapped them for other things that we gave them, such as little glass beads and hawk's bells. Finally, they swapped and gave everything they had with goodwill, but it appeared to us that these people were very poor in everything. They go quite naked as their mothers bore them, and also the women, although I didn't see more than one really young girl. All that I saw were young men, none of them more than 30 years old, very well made, very handsome bodies and very good faces. The hair, coarse almost as the hair of a horse's tail and short. The hair they wear over their eyebrows, except for a hank behind that they wear long and never cut. Some of them paint themselves black, and they are the color of the Canary Islanders, neither black nor white. And some paint themselves white, and others red, and others with what they have. Some paint their faces, others the whole body, others the eyes only, others only the nose. They bear no arms, nor know thereof, for I showed them swords, and they grasped them by the blade and cut themselves through ignorance. They have no iron. Their darts are a kind of rod without iron, and some have at the end a fish's tooth. They are generally fairly tall and good-looking, well-made. I saw some who had marks of wounds on their bodies and made signs to them to ask what it was, and they showed me how people of other islands, which are near, came there and wished to capture them, and they defended themselves. And I believed, and now believe, that people do come from the mainland to take them as slaves. They ought to be good servants and of good skill, for I see that they repeat very quickly all that is said to them. And I believe that they would easily be made Christians because it seemed to me that they belonged to no religion. I, please our Lord, will carry off six of them at my departure to your highnesses so that they may learn to speak 
I saw no beast of any kind except parrots on this island. Close quote. Then the next day, another entry from the journal. Saturday, October 13th. At daybreak, there came to the beach many of these men. All young men, as I have said, and of good stature, very handsome people. Their hair is not kinky, but loose and coarse like horsehair, and the whole forehead and head is very broad, more so than any other race that I have seen, and the eyes very handsome and not small, and themselves not at all black, but of the color of the Canary Islanders. Not should anything else be expected, because this is on the same latitude with the island of Pharaoh and the Canaries. Their legs are very straight, all on a line, and no belly, all very well built. They came to the ship in dugouts, which are fashioned like a long board from the bowl of a tree, and all in one piece and wonderfully made, and so big that in some came forty or forty-five men and others smaller, down to the size that held but a single man. They row with a thing like a baker's peel and go wonderfully fast. And if they capsize, all begin to swim and right it and bail it out with calabashes that they carry. They brought skeins of spun cotton and parrots and darts and other trifles that would be tedious to describe, and all for whatever was given to them." Close quote. One other thing bears mentioning that some of the Indians on Guanahani wore gold jewelry. Not a lot, just a bit here and there, but enough to alert Columbus and his men that there must be a source within the range of trading by canoe. As Howard, the old coot in the treasure of the Sierra Madre said, I know what gold does to men's souls. Finally, Morrison gives us a passage from Columbus's letter to the sovereigns, which after his return was printed and over time distributed widely through Europe. Quote, The Indians are so ingenious and free with all they have that no one would believe it who has not seen it. Of anything that they possess, if it be asked of them, they never say no. On the contrary, they invite you to share it and show as much love as if their hearts went with it, and they are content with whatever trifle be given them, whether it be a thing of value or of petty worth. I forbade that they be given things so worthless as bits of broken crockery and of green glass and lace points, although when they could get them, they thought they had the best jewel in the world. Close quote. I've thought about this passage, and is it really surprising? If a not obviously threatening alien race landed in, say, West Texas for a day or two, made trading gestures, and swapped little alien trinkets, whether baubles or little pieces of fascinating alien textile for, say, an old Almond Brothers t-shirt, would we react differently? I'm with the Indians and probably would have thought that alien lace points were pretty cool. In any case, we'll close this episode with Morrison's observation that, quote, unfortunately, this guilelessness and generosity of the simple savage aroused the worst traits of cupidity and brutality in the average European. To the intellectuals of Europe, it seemed that Columbus had stepped back several millennia and encountered people living in the Golden Age, 
that bright morning of humanity which existed only in the imagination of poets. Columbus's discovery enables Europeans to see their own ancestors, as it were, in a state of nature. Before Pandora's box was opened, the virtuous savage myth, which reached its height in the 18th century, began at Guanahani on October 12, 1492. Close quote. In other words, Holmberg's mistake, which you may recall from our first two episodes. This seems like an excellent place to conclude for today. Next time, we will follow Columbus through the highlights of the first voyage. After that, we will join him on his miraculous trip home and the breaking of the news of the first contact. We will also do at least one episode on the Columbian Exchange and offer thoughts on Columbus's complex legacy. From there, we will move on to episodes describing the early European exploration of North America, including the very first settlements, most of which I had not heard of, followed by deep dives on Jamestown and Plymouth. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, pats on the back, and questions by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you very much for listening.